0: Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vadnell, Australian physiotherapist and calisthenics expert. Dr. Mike Isratal has a PhD in sport physiology and is a professor at Lehman College. He's the co founder of Renaissance Periodization, which is a go to resource for science based nutrition and training. Mike is a master at teaching in a practical yet humorous way. Get ready to learn how to bodybuild the smart way. Mike, Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast.
1: Jeez, thanks for having me. That's a very generous introduction. I don't know how many of those things are true, but I'll try to live up to as much of it as possible.
0: Awesome. So today's conversation will be centered around hypertrophy. So to start with, could you just outline the differences in training for muscle size versus strength?
1: Yeah. So generally both involve lifting heavy weights and through relatively full ranges of motion and with the muscles and in the movements that you want to improve on. But hypertrophy training is a bit more broad in the sense that strength training is really seeking to improve your one repetition maximum. That's kind of the gold standard of strength testing. So a lot of strength training has to have a sufficient volume to stimulate the musculature, but also a sufficiently heavy load and what we call intensity to get your nervous system really well-trained to go really hard for like just a few reps. And that means most of strength training occurs in the three to six repetition range. We call that the basic strength range in sports science. And occasionally you'll drop down and do sets of one to three reps just to get really good at one repetition maxing. But the best way to build strength is in sets of three to six. And you can improve your one rep max, especially if you're a beginner training in sets of five to 10 or even 10 to 15 repetitions, but it's not nearly as efficient or as effective. Where on the other side is hypertrophy training, and while sets of three to six do result in muscle growth and can be used to robustly grow muscle, especially in beginners and intermediates, in everyone, and specifically in advanced folks, uh, repetitions of more than five percent are, are typically a, a better idea for hypertrophy training, because beyond a certain given intensity or load on the bar, the the amount of volume is really important the amount of metabolites that you can generate in the muscle is really important and so sets of five reps and above generally produce uh, require so much tension production not in any one rep but over the course of those reps that they can stimulate a robust level of hypertrophy whereas sets of three can stimulate growth but it just doesn't last that long as far as how long your muscle is contracting. And thus your muscle's like, all right, I'm listening in for the growth stimulus and it's just three reps. And it's like, okay, I'll grow a little bit of muscle, but it's just not that much of a signal. So you want a bigger signal and the signal comes in sort of uh, two forms. One is how intense each repetition is, which is how heavy the weight is. And the other signal is in how many repetitions you do in a single given set. And those signals are roughly opposite of each other. So, you know, if you put a really heavy weight on, you may be able to do it for five repetitions, which means every rep really screams grow muscle, but it's only five screams. Whereas if you do a set of, let's say, 30 repetitions, which is just uh, heavy enough to really be a robust growth stimulus, each repetition uh, just kind of whispers growth. But, you know, it really makes the point by whispering it 30 times. And in the end, it sums up to seemingly roughly about the same amount of growth. So for hypertrophy training, anywhere uh, sets of five to roughly 30 repetitions, and sometimes it's even lighter than that, even more reps, seems to provide a really good growth stimulus. If you do a whole lot less weight than sets of 30, it just might not be heavy enough to challenge the muscle fibers to grow a lot. Then you're essentially working a little bit more on endurance than you are muscle growth. If the sets are much heavier than what you could do for five, so let's say doubles or singles, then you know you're really screaming growth but only one or two reps at a time this is not good enough of a signal Now like you can actually grow as much muscle with sets of two as you can with sets of eight but the number of sets of two you you'd have to do is so many you might cook your joints and your fatigue might be super super high by the time you're done um it's like uh trying to write you know a, 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 a huge a chapter in a book by writing one letter at a time and then taking the pencil away
0: and then another letter at a time to go like holy crap just get in there and do this stuff what are your thoughts on the statement people make that naturals have to get stronger so the argument is we need to spend some time training in the one to four rep range so that we can improve our neural output so that we can use heavier loads in that five to thirty rep range more tension with heavier loads is that a requirement
1: No, it's actually one of the most prevalent myths in in resistance training. I actually have a distinct video on our Renaissance Periodization YouTube channel that addresses specifically that myth. Um, And it's it's expressed in many ways. Some people will say, you know, higher reps are what's called pump work, you know, getting a pump. They say, well, pump work doesn't work for naturals. Naturals have to get stronger. People on steroids don't have to get stronger. They can just do pump work and the steroids make up the difference. The reality is that Almost every single one of the studies, if not every single one, that shows that people grow roughly the same amount from sets of 30 repetitions and sets of five repetitions or so was done on naturals, specifically naturals in their first, often six months and almost always first three years of training, specifically the kind of naturals that you would tell to only train heavy and not do high rep work until they're strong enough. And we, when we compare that directly in the laboratory, people who do sets of 30 gain just as much muscle as people doing sets of five. And so directly, empirically, that's wrong. And also at a theoretical level, there's no reason to believe that muscles work really any differently. Um, I will say, I think one of the places where this myth uh, gets its uh, support, maybe not its origin, but why people wanna listen to it is because look, if I'm drug-free and I'm I'm, I'm in my first six months of training, uh, you know, my sets of 20 is a weight so light that it borders on embarrassing. I mean, I'm curling the empty bar, but if someone tells me, hey, listen, sets of five, they work great, and they're going to get, you know, some, they make up some kind of BS science and say, well, it's the nervous system, blah, 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 you'll get stronger for later. And you're okay, and all of a sudden, I'm doing sets of five with 65 or 75 pounds, and I'm like, all right, like, yeah, this is good. I feel like I'm doing something, and because both result in the equivalent growth, but the heavier training Results in same growth as the lighter training, but also you get stronger. It's like a very compelling argument. To when you try it, you're like, "This is great! I thank God I did this." But in the alternate universe in which you didn't and you just did sets of twenty, you probably end up being the same size, but just without as much strength and with more ability to do reps.
0: Do you think some of that thinking comes from maybe having a bit more of an outcome focus on progression? So some people might find value in quote-unquote, getting stronger, as opposed to just tra- like chasing proximity to failure with a certain rep range, as an example.
1: Yes, but I think it's a specific subcategory of that. And the subcategory is they want to really have some numbers that are impressive on the bar, and getting stronger is fun when you go from squatting almost two plates to squatting two plates. Getting stronger, quote-unquote, uh, for repetitions, isn't so fun. When you used to do 25 reps with a 45-pound unloaded bar, and then a few weeks later, you're doing 25 reps with the bar plus the two and a half kilo weights on it, nobody really bats an eye. It's not so impressive, and you kind of feel like, uh, you know, adding repetitions, you can get just as much muscle as, as per a recently published study that I was involved in doing. You can seemingly gain just as much muscle by, like, having the same weight and going from 15 repetitions, close to failure over time, adding reps instead of weight, going to 20 reps. You can seemingly gain just as much muscle doing that as if you start with, you know, the weight you could do for 15 and over the course of some number of months, increase that weight by let's say 15 kilos or something. And then you're still doing 15, but it's heavier. Both result in the same amount of muscle growth seemingly, but like, geez, you know, telling people or even yourself, they're like, hey, how's lifting going? You're like, man, used to do 100 pounds for 10 reps and i can do it for 15. most people are like okay is that good that's a good thing but if you're like yeah i, I gained 50 you know i gained 20 kilos on my bench press like people are, oh wow like, that's really good and a lot of the other thing is like a lot of this is just there's lots of males in the fitness industry like men and guys just let's just admit it guys just want to go heavy you know, girls just want to have fun we learned that from cindy Lauper back in the 80s and guys just want to go heavy we learned that i guess today so
0: That's refreshing to know that we can progress in a few ways, especially if the goal is for hypertrophy and we don't have to be stuck in that path of just chasing increased loads. We can focus more on the quality of our repetitions and and proximity to failure, which takes me to how do we define what good technique looks like for hypertrophy specifically?
1: It's um, kind of a little bit of a checklist. One is, are you taking the muscle through a more or less a full range of motion? There's nuance on the extremes, but especially the really stretched position of a muscle is a really good way to get it to grow. So, for example, if you want a big chest, but you stop all of your bench presses halfway up from your chest and go back up like, yeah, you're not really stretching the pecs under load. You're not challenging it much. So we could say that's probably not great technique. And if you are doing more or less a full range of motion, if you are controlling the eccentric and the concentric, and if you're not using other muscles and movements unrelated, that actually checks off a, an entirely different box altogether, which is the movement should be fundamentally as safe as possible. As safe as possible. Like when you unrack 200 kilos in a hack squat, like, yeah, you're not in the safest place in the world, but 200 kilos can do crazy stuff, even if you have good technique, but you want it to be as minimally damaging as possible and as stimulative as possible. And the last thing I'll say, when you have good technique and hypertrophy if you follow all of those checklists and maybe a few others what ends up happening is like that doesn't really increase how much weight you can lift in any given session as a matter of fact if you take a lifter who's been using uh, bad technique in strength strength training they weren't positioning their body in the most mechanically advantageous way they're not ripping the bar properly and you teach them good technique in a very short time several weeks sometimes even within the same session They'll become much stronger because you alter the technique to make them stronger. But if you take someone who's a bad technique for muscle growth training and you make them do better technique, it'll be months and maybe years before they touch the same loads again because fundamentally you put the muscle at a leverage disadvantage, which is what you want. And the last thing I'll say here is a good technique in hypertrophy training has the effect of exposing the muscle to tension. So if I show you how to do good technique in a hack squat, I'll take your feet and I'll put them down on the platform and a little closer together so that as you're squatting, you're like, oh my God, I feel like my quads are doing all the work and they're ripping into pieces. Ah, but that's exactly what we want. If you didn't feel your quads, gee whiz, you know, how good that can the technique possibly be?
0: Which comes back to what we were saying earlier, Mike, which is choosing a weight within your means. We need to be training in that five to 30 rep range and with regard to good technique, we need to be using a load that facilitates those parameters, the full range of motion, the tempo. Often people can't do that good technique because they're training beyond their means. It's that guy thing of ego lifting and using loads that don't actually allow you to do that. So I find that people having the day-to-day awareness of load selection is huge. Just because you used X weight for a certain session or certain weeks, Accumulation of fatigue might warrant you auto-regulating that. And if that permits you to do all those things we just said with regard to correct technique, that's fine. Which is why the flexibility, if you will, of hypertrophy intensities with load management is a really beautiful thing that people should take advantage of to use good technique.
1: That is the, you put that really, really well. At the end of the day, technique is primary and load is secondary first you use good technique. And when you can do that with an empty bar or just your own hands, then you get to pick the weight that now fits into, okay, with this good technique, what can I do that challenges me and doesn't break my technique down in the five to 30 rep range? There's a lot of right answers there, but if you were using a weight with bad technique and then now it's time to do good technique, if that weight was something you could do for sets of six with bad technique, You may not be able to do it for a set of one with good technique, or maybe you could do it for a double or something. It is no longer the appropriate weight. So it's not about being attached to weights. It's definitely about being attached to good technique. And once you have a good technique that's stable, you can find your new working weight. And then over time, it becomes important to increase and increase and increase by just tiny little bits, assuming your technique is stable and stable and stable. That's how you grow muscle over the long term.
0: Given the amount of exercises with bodybuilding, we've got so many for every body part, how do we decide what exercise we should choose and what's effective for us personally? Does that exercise seem to
1: give you uh, tension in the target muscle? Like if I'm trying to figure out a bicep exercise and I do a certain exercise, like a wide grip straight barbell curl, like I don't know, I feel a lot of tension in my forearms, but I can't really feel much in my biceps, maybe that's not the right thing. But if I have an easy curl, maybe for me that works better. The easy curl bar, I curl, and holy crap, I feel my bicep tightening up and tensing, and at the bottom where there's a stretch, I feel like it's going to explode. Like, okay, clearly the bicep is being trained. If you're using higher repetitions, you may not be able to really feel the disruptive tension as much, but you'll feel a burn. So if someone, you know, is doing squats and is doing them in two, two different styles, let's say very wide stance and then normal stance, wide stance, they'll do a set of 15. They'll be like, oh, I really feel a burn in my inner thighs and my glutes. And someone will be like, oh, what about your quads? Well, not really. So maybe it's not a great quad exercise, but if you move your feet closer together, all of a sudden you get a crazy burn towards the end of a set in your quads and someone's like, hey, Is that training your quads? You're like, yes, it has to be, because why are they on fire? So those are an example of stimulus proxies. Another one is like, how big of a pump does it get you in the target muscle? Another example comes to mind from curling. Like sometimes you do some kind of weird implement, some kind of grip for a curl, like a cable curl, some different attachment. And sometimes you got a big pump, right? And you're like, yes, in my forearms, not in my biceps. Like that's not a very good sign. Oh, none of these are, by the way, like, the definite one thing you have to feel. Some combination of all of them is pretty good. Another one is disruption. Are your muscles tired? Are they weak, the target muscles that you're going after? You're like, if you tell me there's, like, a movement you're doing for your back that just tortures your back and blows up your lats, but after five sets of it, you can do as many pull-ups as you could fresh, I'm inclined to believe that movement used something entirely different because how could your muscles be five working sets deep and still have all of their strength? BS, but if you try to do a pull-up after five sets of an incredible pull-down and you're like, "Uh, uh, I can't move, this is crazy. That's really good. That means your muscles are toasted. Lastly, if they get sore later that day or the day after, geez, you know, it's hard to argue. If you do a bunch of walking lunges and your glutes get sore, it's very difficult to say, oh, well, those aren't hitting your glutes super well. Like, why, why can't I sit down in a toilet anymore? Of course they're hitting my glutes super well. So those are the stimulus proxies. You want them as high as possible. Exercises that get them really cooking, those tend to be good exercises. But there is a denominator in that equation. There's stimulus on the top of the equation, and you divide that by the fatigue. And the fatigue is like, especially how much did your joints and connective tissues hurt? So, for example, if you have a leg press at your gym and a hack squat at your gym, not all hack squats and leg presses are designed the same. And you're like, okay, I want a really good quad exercise. You try the leg press and like your quads get pretty lit up, but then like your hips hurt and your knees feel weird the day after. and You're like, oh, like I sure hope this isn't just what leg training is normally like. You try the hack squat, your quads get just as lit, no better but your joints feel like cream and butter. The best thing ever, no problem. Someone's like, hey, are your hips hurting? You're like, what? Where are the hips here? I got nothing, no, I got nothing. That's a really good sign. Another one is like systemic fatigue, spillover fatigue. You know, if uh, you get a great back pump for bent over rows for back, but like afterwards you can do shoulders and you can do your presses and you feel totally fine. Like the rows didn't sap you of life force. That's a great exercise. If you try deadlifts instead of bent rows, you may get a similar back pump and back soreness and tension, which is good. But then afterwards, because deadlifts are so systemically fatiguing, someone's like lateral raises and you're like, I think I'm just gonna die right here on the floor. I can't get up, forget about lateral raises. Well, gee, you know, that's a good exercise, but it's one of those that the cost is prohibitive. It's kind of like, you know, if you buy like a Lamborghini as like a daily driver car, yeah, it'll get you to form point A to point B, but you'll pay like a trillion dollars in, in, uh, what do you guys call it over there? Petrol, gas, right? So uh, is that correct? Is it petrol over there? Petrol, yeah, that's what we call it. So, you know, like it's, it's got costs as well as benefits. So if you have an exercise that can really cook the muscles, the muscles you want, and it's an exercise that doesn't come especially at a huge joint and connective tissue cost, after you've made some adjustments for technique, because someone could say, well, skull crushers really beat up my elbows, but you show them a technique fix and now they're all of a sudden good. Exercises that meet that criteria are great exercises to use for hypertrophy training. And last thing I'll say on this topic is this, there's more than one right answer right? That's totally possible. Squats are great. Leg presses are great. Hack squats are great. Walking lunges are great. All of a sudden, you have four or five choices. So, that search for the optimal, optimal, one true exercise is kind of like the search for, like, the best-tasting food. I mean, can you imagine what a ridiculous, like, you watch the Food Network or something, and, like, there's a show called, man, searches for the best-tasting food. Like, there's such a thing? Like, okay, sushi is really good, but after I've had a bunch of salty and meaty food, Another piece of sushi is a waste of my time. I want dessert. And like, what's tastier, this chocolate sundae or the sushi? Like, I don't think like you can really compare the two. It's just all right answers, just the same way that if you do bench presses for a while and you're like, oh, it's my favorite chest exercise. After a few months, it's going to get stale. Your pecs won't respond as much, not as much pump, burn, soreness, weakness. Your joints will get a little creaky. Elbows, shoulders start bothering you. You switch to dumbbell presses. An exercise you didn't love at first, and just because of that novelty, it's different. It feels amazing, way better for your pecs, way better for your joints, and then you do a stupid thing and go, ha, ha. I was wrong, bench presses aren't the best, it's dumbbell press that's the best, and it's like, nope, it's all right answers, is just about cycling in all your top favorites, and you know, if you have three or four exercises per muscle group that you really love, if you cycle them in and out of your program after a while, you might come back to an exercise six months after you've last seen it, it's new again, it's fresh again, and thus you have infinity variation to just keep training for as long as you want with all of your favorite exercises.
0: That's a great response, Mike. I really like that point of there is no best, there is no optimal. It's very individual. It's also dependent on where within their training phase that fits in as well, which can you just highlight how often people should substitute exercises or exercise variety? Because you have people that either stick to the same thing all the time and then eventually it ceases to be effective or you get people who constantly vary the exercise and never get the ability to get a full stimulus through it. What's a general guideline in terms of duration that you found to be effective for exercise variety?
1: Yes, great question. So just to head off something that people may be confused about, we're not saying i'm not answering this question with the presupposition that you only do one exercise at a time so if you let's say do two days a week where you train quadriceps that may mean you do four quad exercises like one two three four you know squats leg presses hack squats lunges like monday monday thursday thursday that's totally fine but the next question is okay let's say you have leg extensions waiting in the wings When do you take one of those exercises, let's say leg press, and replace with leg extensions? Kind of that's what we're answering. The general answer is roughly, very roughly, every three to six months or so, but there's a much better answer than that. And the answer is, theoretically is when the exercise you have its stimulus to fatigue ratio drops under the replacement exercise that you have so basically it's kind of like all right should I do leg presses today because I've been doing them for months and your friend asked you like okay what do you think would be a better stimulus to fatigue ratio like if you did leg press now or if you changed it into to leg extension if you're like nah leg press is still better Leg press it is. But if you're like, ooh, man, I really don't want to do leg presses. Leg extensions seem like they really work out well. Try them. It works great. You're like, hey, thank God I made the switch. But an even better answer is this. Exercises on which you have a good stimulus to fatigue ratio, which means you're getting pumps, you're getting sore. The muscle is easy to target. Your mind-muscle connection is good, which means like, you know, if you're using chest flies, you could really feel the chest. It's not a good sign that you're like, I'm just moving around. I don't know what's going on. Another one is, are your joints feeling good? Like, if your quads are getting torched by leg press, but every single session for the past six weeks, your knees have been feeling worse and worse and worse, like, it might be time to take leg presses out, because, you know, the same exact micro injury in the same area can add up over time if you don't vary. And then lastly, it's how has your progression been? If your joints feel great, your muscles are getting stimulated well. But for the last entire mesocycle, let's say five weeks, you haven't gotten at all stronger on a movement. It's kind of cashed out, maybe, adaptation-wise. And it might be a good idea to switch in another exercise, abandon leg press, introduce leg extension, so you can make some gains on it and continue to make gains. So if an exercise is still allowing you to make gains it's still cooking your muscles up really well it's not hurting your joints a ton or any more than it normally does and there's not like an obvious replacement exercise that you're like i bet this thing will work better keep the exercise in on average that's three to six months until that happens but it could be for much longer or much shorter. Sometimes you use an exercise for a month, and after that month you're like, cash me out, this sucks, I'm never doing it again. And you could be squatting high bar for six years straight and be like, "It's always a great exercise, there's no reason to change it. And then as soon as that equation sort of breaks down, some combination of you're not progressing anymore. Someone's like, hey, you're doing squats. You're like, yeah, they're like, you're getting stronger. You're like, I don't think I've gotten stronger on squats in like three or four months, to be honest. And like, aren't there other exercises you could sort of switch in and get stronger on? You're like, yeah. So, okay, that's one. The other one is like, is the squat still kicking you? Like, is it really hitting the muscles? And if you're like, yeah, I used to really feel it in my quads, now I just don't anymore. I have to do like way more sets of squats than normal to get the same response, that's not good. Then the other one, which I think is the most important, is if your joints and connective tissues really start to get aggravated, and you're already doing very good technique, Like, because obviously your knees can be fried up, but someone comes up to your leg press and is like, push it, put this way, put it out that way, try it, and you're like, oh shit, that actually feels great. That it wasn't uh, an exercise, a cumulative fatigue problem, it was just a technique problem. But even with really great technique, your joints can start to wear down a little bit, and so switching out then, is especially a good idea. And when you can check those three boxes as I'm all good, hey, keep the exercise in, you can change it out to another one, but there's no compelling reason to do so. And to what you uh, hinted at earlier, direct research shows that if you trade out exercises every week, you actually get slightly worse results over the course of several months than if you just stick to one exercise for several months. So my rule is, unless there's a compelling reason to change it, and or you've been training that exercise for at least one to two months, don't change it. But if there's a compelling reason to change it, you know, you're not getting the same pumps and the same responses, your joints are starting to hurt, the exercise hasn't improved in strength in a while, and you've been cooking at it for a couple months at least, oh, hell yeah, get rid of it. And you can always bring it back. And the really cool thing about the human body, if you put it on the back burner for a while or put it away take it off the stove don't use it for a bit three or four months later you bring it back it's going to be like brand new you're going to do you know and people have made that mistake really quick funny story i think a lot of us have done this some exercises are a little bit different than others so they really hit you when they come back but you'll work up to like five sets of walking lunges with dumbbells at the end of three months and you're like hey this is great my glutes get sore for three days no no harm no foul Unless you bring lunges back in four months later and you're like, oh, I last time I did five sets. I could do three sets. And after set number three, your glutes cramp, and you're like, holy crap, you fall on the ground, and you're like, okay, okay, I just cramp, no big deal. And then you're sore for a week and a half, you have to waddle around at work, people are asking you what you're doing, and you're off hours, you're like, I swear to God, man, I just train a lot, me and the guys in the locker room, no, way, I said that wrong. So uh, at some point, it's like it's really easy to overdo it when you bring them back, but that's also a testament to the fact that they're really refreshed and, and ready to kick your butt again and in all
0: the best ways. That concept of race sensitization really needs to be I guess, understood by people at large, because if you think about it, when you've had the same type of movement for a long time, say it's a compound exercise, your absolute loads are getting very high. And if you're not getting that uh, stimulatory aspect to the muscle as you did when you first started, you've got this really high systemic fatigue from these tremendous loads that you're pushing. If you're not progressing, if it's beating up your joints, then simply just substream that for a, a comparable movement that targets the muscles you want to train. Is going to get that higher stimulus with less fatigue, and it just seems like people need that time after you know they've been going at it for some period to change a movement. I think that that's a really valuable uh, perspective you provided, Mike. Super, super. Yep, yeah, agreed. A classic situation people always argue about is training intensity. When it comes to building muscle, what proximity to failure should we be training at?
1: Oh, good question.
0: So. We have some hints
1: from research and we have some hints from observing athletes. And I also have some personal hints from how I feel and how people I've helped through their fitness journeys feel and how they respond. And these hints are mostly on two ends of a spectrum. One is uh, reps and reserve and how far away you are from failure um, that are like is too much. And one that is like, what are the downsides of just grinding every set to failure and beyond? So anything... Uh, farther away from failure than like five reps, like if you could have done 20, but you stop at 14, is probably just not the best use of your time. It's kind of like trying, it's like complaining about not being able to get to get full and being hungry and having to order more sandwiches at the restaurant, but you only eat like half of each sandwich. And you're like, oh, I need another one. You're like, but did you but do you haven't finished the sandwich that's right there? What are you what are you talking about? You finish that. And that's like, why are you stopping when the real fun is just getting started? There's some reason to believe that the last five repetitions, especially, are a little bit more stimulative of growth than the first whatever number. So if you do 15 reps, the first 10 reps absolutely grow muscle, they stimulate muscle growth, but not as much by a small margin because the faster twitch muscle fibers may not be as active, the amount of metabolites, the uh, muscle byproducts that actually stimulate growth that are produced isn't as high. So those last five reps, man, they can really be the business reps. So you just don't wanna uh, do too many sets where you stop five reps away, uh, especially further than five reps away. On the other end, you could say, okay, 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 boom, I got it, no problem. So the last five reps are really stimulative. Let's just go to failure every single time. Like grind every bench press until our buddy has to pull it off. What is the upside of that? The upside is you're gonna get as much growth as possible out of every single set that you do, right? Period, like every set, is there's nowhere else to go. You went to failure, there's nothing else to do. Technically you could do forced reps, but that's just like more reps that are at failure, at failure, at failure, at failure. Okay, great. That seems like the right answer at first. But the downside of that is that you will accumulate lots of fatigue, and that fatigue is physical. It is also psychological, especially as you get stronger, especially on big compound exercises. Failure takes a price because you got to really wake the hell up to go to failure in a set of 20 hack squats. I mean, that changes you. Your nervous system is like, bro, are we running away from crocodiles or something? What the hell is going on? I just wanted to make it Australian since you're- That's uh, perfect,
0: Mike. I like it catering to the audience.
1: Yes, I've been to Australia. I know the crocodiles, they drive the taxi cabs over there. They're everywhere, Yeah. Yep, police officers, koala, it's it's quite popular. So uh, basically you end up uh, doing a lot of really good stuff to the muscle, but the fatigue is so high that again, similar, same concept, the stimulus to fatigue ratio of going all the way to failure, the stimulus is like maybe five or 10% greater. So if you take a set at which you stop like two reps away from failure and a set at which you go all the way to failure, all the way to failure set gives you maybe five or 10% more raw stimulus for growth, which is good, but it might give you 50 or 75% more fatigue, which is like, if you fail in the last week before a deload, hey, sweet, it's worth it, because who cares, I deload after. But if you're going to failure in week one of a program, that really screws up your progression, because you're going to get so overwhelmed with fatigue that you're just not going to be able to consistently come in day after day and week after week, you'll have to take a deload early. So if you don't think ahead, going to failure all the time isn't ideal. What that means, and research has confirmed this, is that on average, roughly 2 reps in reserve is the average best training uh, relative effort was what it's called in the research So stopping about two reps short on average is a good idea, but uh, perhaps another good idea is starting every training progression, every mesocycle, you know, the progression of uh, how much weight you're lifting and how many reps you're doing that lasts for four to six weeks, and then you get tired and you take a deload. Starting that at roughly three or four reps in reserve, three if you're really brave and cocky, four if you're a little bit more reserved, and then at adding a repetition here and there every week, adding a little bit of load, two and a half kilos here and there every week. And as accumulated fatigue starts to go up and as you add reps and load, what's going to happen is automatically you're going to start to get closer and closer to failure just because you try trying to match or beat your past performance. You keep doing that every single week, making stuff a little harder. And then four to six weeks later, especially if you time things right, you're going to be reaching true muscular failure in that last week, which is perfect because it gives you a couple of advantages. One, it maximally stimulates growth. In the next week, you don't care about fatigue because it's a deload anyway. Another thing is this, there's a problem. A lot of people have a tough time figuring out how far away from failure they are. When they start on week one, they're like, hey, go three reps in reserve. And they're like, I don't know what that is. I do a rep, it's kind of hard. I don't know if I have eight more reps or if I have three more reps or if I have one more rep or even zero, I can't tell. Well, no big deal. Just pick your best guess at three, add reps, add load, add reps, add load. In that last week, go all out and just go to failure with good technique, with a spotter and all that. Let's say you've been doing sets of roughly 12 in the weeks preceding that, that last week. And you thought it was, you know, three, two, one, and you're now you're at zero RAR week. And you think, okay, okay, I'm gonna go all out. If you hit 12 or, left, or uh, again, or if you hit 13, hey, your initial guess was pretty right on, right? Like, yeah, you absolutely were three reps in reserve and now you're zero and you're doing the same. If on the other hand, you hit like 18, (laughs) you were for sure being a wuss in the first weeks, but now you know that. And next time, two weeks later after the deload, when you do your first set of curls or whatever for a set of 12, you're gonna be, okay, I think this is three reps in reserve. And
0: because I'm an idiot, and
1: I know I underestimate this, I'm going to do another three or four reps just to make sure.
0: Yeah, it's almost like that delayed gratification of progression. I mean, we get into this stuff, we love it so much. When the stars align with well-rested on that particular day, we don't see how that fits into into the big picture. And then consequently, like you said, I feel that everyone goes through what you used to go through in the past. They just performance just tanks. And this is where just having that, prudent mindset for the longevity of your your training cycle is is really important. That separates, I guess, intermediates in advance from people that never enter that stage. And just to expand on that, Mike, with regard to failure, it's not all created equal in the respect that a compound movement compared to an isolation movement, could you just elaborate on that a little bit with um, compound and isolation, I guess, fatigue at large?
1: Sure. And a lot of that really comes down to how much total muscle mass you're using and how much loading you're imposing so if you're using a ton of muscle which compound tends to do and you're imposing a crap load of loading the fatigue is going to be completely insane and the amount of psychological drive you have to have to continue to go close to failure is going to cost you big so if you err on any side you should err on the side of a little further from failure because you know compounds don't have a problem stimulating you but like if you take them really close to failure you will pay a price. In addition to that, sometimes with compounds and quite complex movements, especially movements in which the optimal resistance profile, uh, sorry, the optimal performance of the movement from point A to point B and that inherently contradicts the optimal hypertrophy execution like stiff-legged deadlifts, going very close to failure is especially problematic because you're going to have a really hard time maintaining good technique. So for example, if you are doing let's say, a bench press, and you told yourself, I'm going to touch my chest every time, I'm gonna lock out every time. As long as you touch your chest and lock out every time, you're like, as you get close to failure, eh, it's the same movement, Nobody, there's not really any way to cheat a bench press, I mean, if you're not having sex with the bar and all this other crazy stuff. So it's that you know, you can go pretty close to failure, on a machine press especially, because also there's no risk, like the machine just, just put it back down, so that's easy, cable curl, tricep extension, you can go grind it close to failure, no big deal. But a stiff-legged deadlift first of all your technique starts to potentially break down close to failure the amount of effort you need to maintain your technique rises a ton but if you really focus on doing another rep the easiest way to do another rep on stiff-legged deadlifts is to let your back round a little bit to let your knees come forward a little bit so that your hamstrings aren't as exposed it puts you in a much better leverage position to lift the bar but you're not there to lift the bar. You're there to let the bar stimulate your hamstrings. So it ends up being like anytime you go really close to failure on a stiff leg and deadlift or RDL, you end up being like, yeah, like I feel like the last three reps I was just doing stuff and I wasn't really like nobody was having any fun anymore. My hamstrings weren't really very stimulated. So a lot of times on compound movements, especially complex ones where... The answer to how to lift the most weight is a very different answer than how to do the movement properly. Going closer to failure is a, I don't want to say it's a fool's errand, but you've got to question how much you get out of it. Whereas on a cable tricep extension, if you really want to grind into failure, as long as you understand how much fatigue that's going to cost you, it's not a super big deal. So if you're somebody who trains clients and you're a coach, if you're not sure if someone's close to failure or not on a tricep extension, have them do another rep. If on a stiff-legged deadlift RDL you're not sure, have them stop. You don't want to go into that close to failure range with zero, one rep away from failure, especially with anything other than very advanced self-aware trainees, because that last rep could be like ugly, 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 and ugly reps with heavy loads, especially when it involves the lower back by a small fraction can increase the chance for pretty serious injury. And it's very small, but you know, like if I can avoid even a small injury risk, I will if it, it makes the quality of my training better.
0: Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. Let's switch gears and talk about volume. The classic recommendation is 10 to 20 sets as a starting point for most people, works most of the time. How do we as individuals determine our personal most effective volume dose?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a very good recommendation. The maybe not unfortunate, but limited part of the recommendation is it occurs on a weekly basis. And volume recommendations uh, may be more productive to make them per session. Like every time you train chest, how many sets of chest should you do? And generally, there's a couple of boxes to check to make sure you're going hard enough, doing enough sets. And then you start a journey of exploration to see what the top end of the number is. So enough sets means that you're probably getting a decent pump. The muscle is getting a little bit tired and you feel a bit weaker. It would be very unlikely that you could grow your triceps the biggest, where you do like one set and you leave the gym. And like someone's like, your triceps fried? And you're like, no. Like, Are they tired? no i feel great like really like i'm not really convinced that you stimulated a lot of growth growth stimulus and local fatigue are pretty closely linked together so you want to cook your muscles a little bit that's probably a decent estimate of what we call minimum effective volume it's the least amount of volume you need to do to get some measurable notable kind of growth and then north of there there's probably a lot of other sets you could do that will grow more muscle and more muscle and more muscle until they can no longer grow any more muscle That point at which they can't grow any more muscle because it generally occurs when you are no longer able to recover for next week and continue to work at your same effort. For example, let's say I had you do an entire week of training, four or five sessions for your legs, where it was 36 sets of squats or something or 36 sets of quad training. The next week, you would come back literally weaker, just a ton weaker, sore, fried up, just totally useless. And then, you know, you used to you know do your squats with 150 kilos, now the same reps, you can only do 120 kilos. If I say, okay, same, same workout, 36 sets, again, next week you come back, you can only do 110 kilos. Like, what part of growing muscle means you get weaker week to week? That's not good. And it also allows you, or prevents you rather, from making a very good overload. Like, quality workouts that are a little bit harder than the last time you trained that muscle are kind of the core concept of uh how to progress and if you are so beat up that you're weaker every single time geez you know how are you supposed to drive a whole lot of growth like that so what you want to do is start at the level of volume per session that just barely gets those boxes checked if i got a little bit of a pump i got a little tired okay great And over the course of be it weeks or months, there's a few different ways to do this. uh, You can add a set here and there if you feel like you're adequately recovering. And then you end up in a place where you can no longer recover because it's just straight up too much work and you start getting weaker. That number of sets you did in the last week before you started getting weaker, that's a very good guess at what's termed your MRV, maximum recoverable volume. It's the most volume you can do and recover from. Almost always that number is at or higher than What's called a maximum adaptive volume, which is the volume at which you get your best adaptations. So, minimum effective, you found your maximum recoverable, somewhere in there is your maximum adaptive. Now, to be honest, it, more nuanced, it kind of moves around a little bit, but somewhere in there is the right answer. So, if you Started doing three sets for your chest, and you worked up to doing eight sets for chest until you just couldn't recover anymore. Then, you know, somewhere between three and eight sets, maybe five or six sets on average is kind of where you grow probably the most muscle, and that's pretty good. And that people will say, "Well, geez, that's a really rough target." Well, hold on a second. It is totally. It's limited. But if someone says, "Hey, man, I got a crazy chest workout. It's just one set," you could be like, guy, listen." I need five or six sets he's like well how do you know because i've experimented with it and one set will barely get me anywhere or if someone says hey man i got this german volume training 50 set chest workout you could be like well that's 10 times more than i normally do there's no way i can recover from that that's also stupid so even if you're within five set number per workout guess that's a pretty good guess and you're well on your way another way to tell just for bonus points if it's time to add sets or not, because I said, you know, we can add a set here and there, but how do you know if, if you should add a set if you kind of back away, other than, of course, hitting the wall of your MRV, is how your recovery is going session to session, specifically with soreness. If your muscles are still sore, let's say you train chest Monday, Thursday. If you trained with four sets Monday, and by Thursday your chest feels completely healed and great, yeah, you can try five sets next Monday, because it'll probably be totally good. But if you did four sets this Monday and by Thursday, your chest was still sore to the touch. How in the world are you gonna do five sets next Monday and then recover for what? For next Monday after that? You gotta do fewer, maybe three is the right answer. So timing, doing just
0: enough sets to recover next time is probably a good idea. Starting with what you can actually manage to stimulate and recover is just golden advice. I think people should really just digest that. And on the other end of the spectrum, I see, people starting their mesocycles with too much volume. And this is what's fascinating about volume is that there's that sliding scale with intensity, right? We've all seen people in the gym that have these you know, 30 set chest workouts or whatever. How are you going to be putting in the intensity into each set to get through and survive 30 sets? That's why just finding that zone for you that you can actually handle, less is more at the start, progressing that over time is the best approach because we've all done that where we just cruise through tons of sets and it just becomes almost redundant to be able to actually focus and stimulate with that much work.
1: Yes. And there's also the psychological element of a lot of people work out to kind of feel like they've – expressed their emotions into the gym they've sublimated them like uh, driving your car at night and just screaming as loud as you can like it's that same kind of therapy they're trying to get which listen i got all the love for in the world if lifting is your therapy cook yourself like get what you need out of the gym amazing do it no no regrets but at some point you may be interested in optimal results a little bit more than therapy like i'm a competitive bodybuilder i'm not so good at it i'm okay but like i have to get on a stage almost naked in front of tons of people and put my reputation on stake so like i don't so much care about therapy in the gym i want to do what works the best because you know can you imagine taking like fifth at a bodybuilding show like i have a bunch of times and then in turn into the guy who took fourth or first and be like, yeah, at least I got my therapy in. They're like, What? What? Okay, that, that's nice, man. Get away from me. <laughs> Clearly not enough because you're still talking to me. But uh, it's one of those things where at some point you have to decide, you know, am I doing this for therapeutic reasons? Am I doing this for optimum reasons? And there's definitely a happy medium, but a lot of that is retraining your mind instead of having your therapy be just cooking yourself, maybe your therapy can be, I'm going to be really specific, I'm going to work hard as fuck in these sets, and I'm going to cut them off at the RAR that I need, and I'm going to be really proud of the results that I'm getting, and doing things right. Going in and trying hard and doing things right is great. And I will say towards the later weeks, the last week of a, a mesocycle before you deload, bro, you'll have more than enough therapy juice Good God! And as you get stronger and bigger over time, lifting gets so difficult that you'll be like, "Look, I, I don't have this much therapy to do. I actually feel quite normal. I don't have any more demons." At this point, I got, you got—you know—we all got lifting in the same thing, right? Anyway, I did. I got into lifting because I had a lot of workout. Uh, I had to work out a lot of demons, right? But like at this point, my demons are teeny tiny, and my weights and the sets and reps are huge, and I'm like, "Oh man." okay, well, I don't feel like I need to be here, but I have to be here for optimality. And at that point, it's just doing what scientifically and from your own perception is a good idea to actually get results versus what's a good idea therapeutically for like, I wanna crush my chest today. Like, yes, crushing your chest today will feel good today, but how will that set you up to crush your chest tomorrow Uh, or so the day, you know, a couple days later, a couple weeks later, do you really want big pecs in a year or do you want decent pecs in a year? And like the ability to say, well, at least I'm having really fun workouts.
0: What advice do you have for people who hear this, they're cognizant of that. That makes, that makes sense. They can rationalize it. Some people would have fear that if they're not attacking their workouts with that, I guess, angst or wanting to get the therapeutic effects of it. Any advice for like restraint to be able to like hold back and I guess live to fight another day and keep progressing sustainably back to that word.
1: Yes. Yes. Here's my advice. The people that are the best in the world at doing what they do are people that are logical and athletic and calculating and strategic, and they don't just go based on their feelings. If you see videos of Navy SEALs attacking a compound, do they run in there yelling and shooting their guns like this? No. They go in there with four times the number of people they needed to get the job done. They go in quietly. They go in carefully. They only shoot what they need to shoot. They're super reserved because that's how you get the job done because there's a purpose to the whole thing. How many times have you seen an MMA fight in the UFC where the guys are yelling and screaming and crying while they're punching each other? It just never happens. If the guys walk in there and they're cool and calm and collected, they're focused, they're Intense, but they do what they need to do. They're not there to just emotionally throw up all over themselves. So if you have trouble reserving yourself for the gym. Ask yourself, do you want to be a Navy SEAL, Delta Force kind of guy? Do you want to be a pro mixed martial artist kind of guy? Or do you want to be like that eight-year-old that got beat up too many times and is now screaming and crying and punching into the air? If that's you, the latter one, hey, listen, total respect. We all got demons. Work them out. You know what I'm saying? Take a kickboxing class. And just go up that bag for a while. That'll tire your ass out. But, uh, but if you want results, treat yourself like a strategist, like an adult. You know, like like someone who plans. Children do what they feel like. Adults do what they have to. Even though it's not always the thing that you might want to do. In the end, you'll thank yourself for it. People say, hey, dude, you have an amazing physique. How do I get to be like that? You'll think back and you'll be like, lots of patience. Lots of restraint when I wanted to go hard and on the flip side lots of pure demonic energy when i didn't want to go hard because for as many times early in your career that you may restrain yourself and good technique no over crazy failure stuff limited volume as your career progresses you get bigger and stronger you may do stuff that you don't wanna do. I just hit a personal PR a few weeks back of uh, leg pressing seven plates a side for, uh, for the first time ever for reps. I don't wanna do, this shit is scary, bro. I put all seven plates on there, but what's gonna happen if like my knee goes out? I'll just die here in my own gym and it, but my wife will find me like three hours later rotting or something, You know, it's, it's, like why am I doing this? I could just get a good a fine workout if I just did five plates or three plates. So why am I even leg pressing? I'll just squat so I can dump the bar. I don't want any part of this. Like at some point you get strong enough that a regular bar, like, Like it happens around like 150K or so. You just put 150K in a normal rack and you can see the bar suddenly starts to curve just sitting there. And you're like, that weight is bending steel. Why the hell am I going under it? That's when it's time to kind of warrior up and be like, I don't care. I'll do whatever it takes. Put me in there. Let's get this done. If it hurts, I don't care. If it's too many sets, I don't care. And high volume training really does punish you because it's easy to get psyched up for one hard set and go home with your buddies. Six sets of squats will have you reevaluate a lot of shit about yourself. So yes, be patient and be strategic. But when the time comes to really put it all out there, your therapeutic energy may not be enough. And that there's a term in wrestling and a bunch of other sports called digging deep. Uh, We use it a bunch in America. I don't know if you guys do it. Like, dig deep. And that means that you got to find some other shit to motivate yourself rather than just, like, I have all this energy from just being young and not having people pay attention to me as much or whatever 13-year-olds think. I was one before I remember that feeling. Like, it may – it's not just an expression anymore. It's an intent. Like, you have to go and find reasons. And so it's uh, a really strategic person, a really wise person, holds back when they have to and when it's time to give it their all they give it their all there's no glory in that but there's a higher level of glory in realizing that you can be the master of your own domain and do what you have to do versus what you feel like doing
0: yeah that's a big separating aspect between an amateur mindset and a professional and i feel like i just got schooled in the mike Isratel philosophy so myself and the audience thanks you for that that was an absolute gem
1: Oh, <laughs> my, my pleasure. I don't know if I'm making any sense, by the way. So uh, hopefully it made some sense.
0: What are your body composition recommendations for the calisthenic athlete? Because our situation, we need a level of relative strength performance because we're moving up our body weight. Um, but then we also know that if we want to build muscle, we need to be in a well-fed state, progressive calorie surplus. What should we be looking at in terms of body fat percentage levels to get to and calorie surplus rates of weight gain? The lowest body fat
1: you should go to is the one at which your performance is the best and you still have high quality training and your joints don't hurt a ton because if you get really lean, joints start hurting. You just don't have a ton of energy. Someone's like, oh, my God, you're so light and lean. You should be able to do a ton of pull-ups. And you're like, I would, except I'm tired and I need to eat. <laughs> I don't want to do pull-ups. I just want to go home and eat pancakes and then fall asleep. It's Just the bottom end, I would say that for most people, that's somewhere between 8% and 10% body fat. Some folks can get to 6 and 5% and perform at their best in calisthenics. It's not um, so common. If that's you, if you get to 8% body fat and you're still dieting down and you have another month for fat loss, keep going. See how it affects you. Be careful in your training. Don't do anything crazy explosive. You might be like, oh, wow, I actually perform my best when I'm at, like, 6%. Well, then you know that for the future. So if you have important competitions coming up or you want to hit really big PRs, now you know, like, hey, 6% is where I have the least body mass that I have to carry around extra. Great. Great. And then I would say the top end, now for most folks, especially for serious folks, um, is probably 15% body fat. Here's the thing. At 15%, your your calisthenics is going to suffer unbelievably on the one hand. But on the other hand, you will get so fucking strong moving your big ass body around that if you can hit like 10 pull-ups with 50 kilos hanging when you're fatter... As you lose weight in your next fat loss cycle, you're gonna be like, holy shit, I can do, pull. I don't even need hands. You just, you're moving up and down with the bar. You do not even gripping it anymore. That's how jacked you got, right? So it's okay to step back a little bit. Let's say you normally weigh, you know, 70 kilos. It's okay over a course of a couple months to slowly gain, by slowly I mean probably half a kilo a week, to gain a quarter of a kilo, half a kilo a week, to gain up to like 75 kilos. Uh, right now for everyone's listening it will absolutely devastate your performance in many cases in the short term but if you can hang on to as much performance as possible now obviously in some stuff like push-ups you're going to be skyrocketing because you're big as fuck and this is easy as shit but in pull-ups and stuff dips like yeah it's going to be tougher because you're fat right fatter heavier yeah. and but you will gain some fat and some muscle and then you take a bit of time, just train at that heavier weight. Training at a slightly heavier weight is like, uh, you know, Goku training in the time chamber or something in Dragon Ball Z, right? The ultimate inspiration for calisthenics, no That's less. Right. And uh, right. And then, so you get used to training at a heavier weight, And you're like starting to feel your own swag again. You're like, hey, hell yeah, like I'm almost hitting pull-up PRs, uh, you know, at this new heavyweight that I used to hit back in the day when I was lighter. Then over the course of several months, by losing again another like half a kilo, maybe a kilo a week, that's pretty fast to say half a kilo a week. um, You lose that for maybe eight weeks or something shred down again to 10% body fat or a little bit below on average for higher level uh, calisthenics guys and then all of a sudden you keep most if not all of the muscle you gained and you are back to being as light as you ever were just a tad bit heavier and holy crap you know what it's like if you keep most of your strength at the end of a fat loss phase you can do pull-ups until the earth crashes into the moon you're just And the way you got there is by challenging yourself, getting out of your comfort zone, gaining some weight and gaining some muscle. If you're always the same size, you're always the same lean body fat level, you will make progress and you will add muscle. But you won't do it as quickly as if you gain a couple kilos, maintain for a while, lose a couple kilos. That cyclic approach allows you to over long term gain muscle and lose fat eventually you'll get to a body weight, which roughly will be your optimum competition body weight.
0: I feel that it needs to be with focusing on one thing at a time, as you said at the start of that, Mike, with when people decide to go on a surplus and still want to do their calisthenics, I feel that the most productive way to do it is to really focus on those compounds, dips, pull-ups, push-ups, rows, overloading those with heavier weights, using body weight exercises and or weights, throwing in isolation movements as well, not being afraid to be on that surplus. What I would recommend though, is not trying to do that as well as do the strength skills. I'm not sure, Mike, if you've seen calisthenics, people doing front levers, we've got planches, we've got all that crazy stuff. They're great, but they suck when you're heavy. So what often happens is people do calisthenics, they're lean, feels great, I can move my body around, this is awesome, good body composition, lean. They wanna be on a surplus, then they feel that all that stuff starts to be compromised, which it will. What I'm recommending, and just to go off the back of what you said, is it's productive to spend some time in a surplus, grow the relevant muscle groups that you'll be using for those strength skills. Then as you go on a gradual deficit, you can introduce in those more neurological exercises, which will benefit from increased muscle mass in the constituent muscles that are involved, as well as the lower body fat percentage to be able to put that increased muscle mass to use on those skills. I just feel that people never want to be on a surplus because they're afraid of losing that. But if you do it sensibly and strategic, you know, in a slow way in terms of biasing it towards, you know, muscle growth with your movements that you're trying to do for range of motion, etc., And then as you go on a deficit, shifting gears, you'll be rewarded with a more impressive physique and, You'll be able to teach those bigger muscles how to do the neurological skills that you want to get as well so best of both worlds
1: i think that's great advice there's a couple of ways to do it and the nuance that i'd love to comment on if that's okay and a couple of really good benefits um one of the ways to do it is some people uh, may benefit from just completely excising and getting rid of all the uh the showy the showy movements so to speak like the competition movements or um um, uh, and and that's totally cool and when they come back in they're just going to be like a couple weird awkward sessions of it feels strange but then it comes back like it was yesterday but if you're very concerned that you're just going to have awkwardness only for months after first of all that's not true but what you can do is take the volume intensity duration and frequency of your pure calisthenic movements like your front levers and just reduce it substantially, it turns out that to maintain your skills, it's just not that hard. You gotta work a lot to improve them, but the maintenance is easy. So if typically you practice front levers, let's say four times a week and you hold it for a certain number of seconds, certain number of reps each time, cut the amount of time you hold that position by half cut the number of reps or sorry sets of it by half and then just train it twice a week you can do it as part of your warm up for your weightlifting that day that has more of what you said isolations compound movements repetitions so it never feels completely alien to you, but you do so much less of it that you can really focus more of your efforts on getting better. And like, as you gain weight, you're going to feel a little worse on the actual movements themselves. But then when you come back to training them more and you start losing weight, it's going to be like this revival. Where you're like, holy crap, I'm just getting unbelievable. And that's a great thing. But to the extent that you can reduce that amount of technical work that you do the lowest, Get a huge benefit. One of the benefits is this it'll save the living shit out of your joints because some of the movements in calisthenics are fucking brutal and they will wear you down you can refresh those uh, those uh specific joints uh they heal up a little bit so that when you come back and slowly reintroduce all those tactical movements you your joints are as fresh as ever you get an amazing training cycle you hit all new prs and then you go back into that body composition phase where you get less specific work and more of that supplementary work that cyclical thing It's called periodization, and the Eastern Bloc countries that invented it, of course combined with steroids that they were prescribing people, resulted in a generation of Olympic victories and a complete rethinking of how you're supposed to train. That is a serious approach to training. And a lot of times, and this is very, very uh, applicable to a lot of training communities, but specifically the calisthenics community, and this is getting better for folks like you and other people on the internet trying to educate people, but in calisthenics, because the amount of equipment you need is minimal, and you can look at training videos online and just little demonstrations and learn some decent stuff, some people approach their training with just basically zero awareness of the fact that periodization exists. Like there have been people before you that really thought this through and they made all of these mistakes that they don't want you to make. So when you got some guy who's like just the best at calisthenics in his gym, you're like, hey, do you ever try cycling in the bodyweight movements and cycling in weight lifts? He's like, no, man, I don't need to. I just love the, I just get the best out of my front levers. I just train them a lot. Everything goes great. It's like, yeah, but in the global scale, you ain't shit. And all the guys at the top of the global scale are some combination of genetically gifted and training very, very intelligently and thinking about stuff. So it's easy to be the person to say, hey, like, I don't need this periodization stuff. But at some point, you won't be getting better anymore. And then you'll think, ooh, what can I do to get better? They'll log on to your site. They'll start following your stuff. They'll follow all the calisthenics people. And they'll start thinking and go, man, I wish I had done this earlier. I made so many mistakes. It's a really good idea to do the cyclic approach again for something you said much earlier in the podcast. It's not, there's a delayed gratification thing there. You know, of course it feels awesome to PR on your your competition moves every session. And when you're a beginner, that's all you do. Like if you learn front levers for the first time, you can go back every other day and just be better at it for like weeks and weeks and weeks, no shit. But when you get really, really good, there's ups and downs and you may have to get away from doing what you're doing, come in and bring some supplementary work in and then only later bring that other stuff back. It's the long view. It's the thinking ahead that makes you better.
0: This is why I'm passionate about introducing weights and a hypertrophy approach into calisthenics, even though most people get into it to get stronger, do the flashy skills. It's this whole longevity component because unfortunately with the way the internet's structured, we almost get into this echo chamber, right? So the calisthenics person has a calisthenics community and we just do calisthenics. Which is great. It's a good way to improve it, but in terms of the long-term approach, As you said, swapping things out for comparable movements with weights, with machines, is going to be so good for your body and keep you in this for for decades into, into older age because the body can handle a lot, just not a lot of the same thing all the time. I want you to maybe elaborate on free weights versus machines and the benefits of perhaps machines for someone that's only ever used free weights.
1: Yeah, so um, the best way I can conceptually describe this so people can maybe, before I start describing the benefits of the machines, kind of set the stage to open their minds for it is the following. If you want to get as strong as possible in calisthenics only using a combination pull-up bar dip stand, you can do that, and you can go miles and miles. You can become a god doing that stuff. And that's great but you probably aren't so keen on telling people after you post let's say a pull-up pr like hey guys and i only did this with training with one bar that's all i did nobody really cares you know the jurassic park meme where he's like see nobody cares nobody cares that so what you really want is something different and most people who do calisthenics really don't want to just get as good as they can with limited equipment they just want to get as good as they can, period. That is the big goal. And then the next question is asked, what can I do? What inputs can I put into that goal to make that happen? And I don't have an ideology. I don't care. It's like having a uh, someone try to build you the best military. And you're like, all right, we'll need rifles and body armor and tanks. And the guy is like, no, 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 no tanks. I'm like, why not? We're not a tank military. We can do this without tanks. Like, do you want to win the war or not? What the hell is wrong with you? Tanks are effective. Let's get some tanks. Like, okay, fine. So the machines thing is like, what is it that we need from a machine? We're done with saying machines are bad because we're open-minded people that just want to get as good at calisthenics as possible. Because you go to a competition, you get 55 pull-ups. The guy who gets second place to you gets 52. And he's like, I only ever used, you know, just one pull-up bar. And you're like, I don't care. (laughs) I won. (laughs) Go to hell. How do you win? Well, the machines, their big advantage is they can isolate a specific muscle or muscle group in a way that oftentimes doesn't involve a lot of the others. It doesn't fatigue you a ton. It doesn't hurt your joints. And then that isolation is what allows you to increase the strength or size of that specific muscle, and that plugs back in to your overall plan. So, for example, if you, let's say, are in a situation where you're working on increasing your pull-up abilities, be it for repetitions or for strength, and you have a situation where you know that your lats and your pulling muscles in your back can take more, they can for sure take more, and they'll benefit from more, But you also know that your elbows are giving you some problems and you just you can't this motion it just if you could somehow train your back and still but not really use your elbows that would be great well what can you do that without you know a machine like yeah it's it's limited it's tough all right get a cable machine and do lat prayers you can keep your elbows completely straight or just not involved you don't have to bend it under load and your lats get Torched up, and all of a sudden they get bigger, they get stronger, you get back into doing more pull-ups when your elbows heal, and all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, I'm the best I've ever been at this because I found a way to specifically target the lats, and it's it's definitely good to do tons of pull-ups, but maybe as many pull-ups as you could do is limited by your elbow, but your lats could still use the work. So you do as many pull-ups as you can in your training until your elbows feel a little weird, then you go over to the cable station and you do lat pairs until your lats feel a little weird, then you're done for the day or for the week or whatever, and that gives each part of your body more of what you need. Here's another one. If you have uh, stronger biceps, can you do more pull-ups? Well, yeah, hell yeah, you can. Look, how are you supposed to get your strongest biceps if all you have is a pull-up bar? Can you do underhand pull-ups? Yes, but they hit your lats too. If you're really strong, can you do like plank, basically curls with your body? Yes, but that's really hard and it really beats up your elbows. What's to stop you from picking up a curl bar or uh, doing a curl machine or a cable curl and hitting up just your biceps? In a low fatigue state, you get them shits bigger, and then all of a sudden it all comes together and you're training every part of your body exactly like you need. That's really a big advantage of machines is like, if, body, if our bodybuilders sort of discovered this, could they get big legs with squats? Yes. But at some point, squats are limited by your lower back strength and your glutes and your recovery. It's just your spine's doing this and you're like, ah, shit, is there a way for me to train my legs without using my back? Well, the leg press, and you're like, holy crap, this is great. That doesn't mean squats are bad. So when we say machines are good, that doesn't mean it. Stop free weights, stop your calisthenics moves, only machines. No way. We're going to do as much calisthenics as possible, as much free weights if we have to train with weights as possible, because the transfer of training from free weights that you have to move with your own body is better to calisthenics than as machines. But if there's a good reason to use machines, specifically to isolate a particular muscle that could use more work in a way that doesn't really make the rest of your body tired or leaves alone potentially slightly hurt parts of you, then that's the right answer. And that's where machines are great. And again, the philosophy is, I'll do anything it takes to get better at calisthenics. And if that means I have to go do machines, and that means my calisthenics buddies see me doing it and they laugh at me, hey, I'm laughing too. I know this looks lame, fellas. Fuck these machines. Am I right? But then you finish your curls. And then the next competition, the next time you're at the park together showing off, you just dunk on all of them. And they're like, oh, shit, what are you doing over there? you taking steroids? And you're like, no, motherfucker, I'm in the gym. God damn it. There's this place called gym where they have these things that can stimulate your muscles. They're called machines and weights. You know, that's what we do here. (laughs) So that's, uh, you know, there's not a sport anymore. There's no modern sport. It doesn't utilize weight rooms and machines. Can you imagine coming up to a hockey player or an Aussie rules football player and be like, why are you in the weight room? You're supposed to be playing Aussie rules football. Like you're supposed to be on the pitch. And he's like, what are you, stupid or something? I'm in here to train my hamstrings so they don't get hurt out on the field. Get out of here. So a calisthenics athlete, the playground, the calisthenics equipment, that's your arena of showing off. And it's a great place to train. But there are other places to train supplementary training. There's the weight room, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that's where really good stuff happens.
0: A great example I can give here for people to actually apply when they're doing their calisthenics stuff is with the strength component of, say, trying to improve your weighted pull-up, you're primarily going to improve that by doing weighted pull-ups. Sweet. If you're doing that with a strength rep dosage, go for it. Do that at the start of your session. But then after you've done that, just say, okay, I've got what I needed out of this as according to my plan, but I want to exhaust my back muscles. What the average calisthenics person would do would be to take the weight off, maybe do some type of reduced load drop set for moderate rep ranges. So they can stimulate in a more efficient way for hypertrophy, but that's probably not the best approach because with a pull-up, you've got a lot of coordination, technique. There's so much instability with the swinging. If you just did a lat pull-down, so much more superior as an exercise to come afterwards because you've got the stability of the machine. And then you can actually exhaust the muscles properly as opposed to being tired from just trying to coordinate your body with a pull-up. So that's one example that the calisthenics people can take as an upper body approach. And from a longevity and injury prevention standpoint, just say you started noticing that you're having issues with your elbows, like tendon-related stuff, and all you ever do is compound movements. You're doing tons of pull-ups, tons of rows chances are there might be some missing pieces in your elbow. So like the muscles surrounding that, maybe you never fully exhaust your biceps, maybe you never fully exhaust your triceps. So adding in isolation towards the middle to latter part of your session is going to fill in those gaps in your body and potentially improve performance, potentially improve longevity. So there's there's value in using weights and machines in particular, um, as your example there, of being able to, has stability to genuinely train muscles to failure.
1: Brilliantly put. And I think there's a quote, I don't know who said it, I think it's Einstein, but I'll have the Einstein quotes he never said. Um, you know, you, you want to make everything that you can as simple as it, as it can be, but no simpler. And I think some folks in calisthenics are stuck in the, you know, I'm just going to use body weight. And it's almost like a religion. It's like, so do you actually want to get good at calisthenics? Or do you want to just only do it with using just the calisthenic implements, there's the same thing in weightlifting, and it's the same thing in in, in in powerlifting where they're like, Yep, just train the big three squat, bench, and deadlift. You're like, Why? Why? That you could get better doing supplementary things. And no one's saying the supplementary things are better than the core stuff. You do the core stuff as much as you can, but there may be other smarter ways of adding things in, taking things out that on the net balance just make you better at stuff. And is it, the question at the end of the day is always the same. Do you want to get as good as you can? And if you have to get as good as you can, you're going to do some stuff that is going to end up making you look more like a bodybuilder. you like, if calisthenics athletes take their, their shit seriously, all of a sudden they start following good nutritional principles. And like, you know, your friends will make fun of you because they're like, what are you doing? Like, There's always that calisthenic guy that eats like macas every day and he's got abs and he's great. And and all of a sudden you're like, oh, why am I doing good nutrition? Because if that guy with his genetics did great nutrition, he'd be going to like world exhibitions on calisthenics. But he's just really good locally because he doesn't want to take that next step. So it's all about deciding if you're a, you know, not if you're a serious athlete or if you're just a recreational person, But understanding there's a spectrum of how advanced you want to make your training, how intricate, how intricate you want to make your diet. And if you are unsatisfied with being very recreational, how can you formalize your training? first you do free weights then later you do some machines then later you do advanced periodization then later you get you actually hire a coach to help you because you have somebody like you coach in in calisthenics how many people get coached in calisthenics most people at calisthenics it's just like go on the playground and do stuff with my friends i maybe watch a hannibal for king youtube video and that's about a... i'm impressed mike i like that that's great so right, and like you know, because uh, you know that, that's the perfect example of like, yeah, well, he just got that jacked being in playgrounds. It's like, yeah, but you don't look like that idiot. And if you want to be as as jacked as Hannibal for King, you may have to do other things. And who even knows? Maybe he goes to the waiting room in his spare time. The camera's only on when he's in the playground. Who knows what he does ooh, in his off hours? Right? no oh, conspiracy, Mike. Because it's always that. But in any case, it's like you just have to understand that like where you want to go may require doing things that aren't stereotypical
0: when people plateau it's very frustrating not seeing progress how can we go about troubleshooting lack of progress like any type of tips that you have for that mike
1: yes so the first thing you have to do is before you start troubleshooting you should intellectually examine what could be the problems and then you should try to weave out from that what would be the symptoms of those problems so there are a couple of candidates for plateauing One of the main ones, just as an example, the very intense exercise to go through all of them, but uh, one of them is you are overreached. That means your level of fatigue is very high. And oftentimes the way people solve plateaus is by training harder. I mean, that's the ultimate masculine way to solve any problem is just go harder. And listen, there's a lot to be said for that method. It works really well until it accumulates so much fatigue for you that the amount of fatigue you're accumulating counterbalances the amount of fitness that you're adding And what's called your preparedness, is how good you actually are, starts to decline. Then you hit a plateau. And then you think, how can I solve this problem? Well, first of all, you have to diagnose it. So if you know, okay, excessive fatigue is a thing, but it comes with telltale signs. A plateau isn't the only thing that uh, excessive fatigue comes with. It's, do my joints feel a little creaky and sore and they kind of hurt? Is my motivation to train lower than normal? So for example, if you take four weeks off of training, You're plateaued, like you're not hitting PRs after four weeks, but your joints feel amazing, like they're they're fresh out of the womb, and also you are just dying to train. So clearly overtraining is not a problem when you take four weeks off because obviously you're undertrained, right? So if you think, okay, I'm plateaued, my training desire kind of sucks, my sleep isn't that great, my hunger has been a bit weird, like I don't want to eat food. Um, and my joints feel kind of bad, and I know I've just been crushing workouts in the last three weeks, like way more than normal, your plateau is probably the result, or at least maybe the result of what's called overreaching, just doing too much and you're under recovering. The best way to fix that is to basically take two weeks, and in that two weeks, take like half of the weights that you're using, half of the set numbers, the frequencies, just cut everything in half and do that for two weeks. And maybe the last half of that last week, of the second week, just don't do any exercise. Don't you go next to any equipment. Just go camping with your friends or something like that. And then when you come back, you're going to be fresh as shit, but a little bit detrained. You're going to feel a little softer, more awkward, but you're going to know that fatigue has been dropped and it's just all going to go away. Then you slowly ease back into training, a little bit of training, then a little bit more You get more sore than usual. a little bit more you're not getting a sore and you raise your training slowly marginally over several weeks and then you just go pr 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 and then you're back so that's an example of kind of diagnosing your overreach state and that's that's the reason a plateau occurs um i would say that if you don't know why your plateau is occurring Washing the slate clean with at least a deload week, a week of very easy training, or maybe even an active rest where you take two weeks of basically one and a half or one week of much easier training and one to a half a week of just almost nothing or nothing at all. I would say washing the slate clean like that uh, oftentimes checks the box of like, okay, for sure, if it's overreaching, I fixed that. And then you can go about and go hitting a lot of PRs. Um, it's never really a bad move unless you're doing it every like six weeks. <laughs> every six weeks, I take two weeks off. Like, okay, that's clearly not, you know, overreaching is clearly not what's happening. So it's a, that's usually a good move and then if that's not what fixes it you know there could be other situations where for example you compare your various abilities for various muscles and you find okay compared to other folks that are as capable as me my back strength is really good when i do my lifts for my back i'm really impressive but my, my my i just have smaller biceps than everybody and i'm weaker in them i think my plateau is like i'm getting as much as i ever will out of my back my biceps are the limiting factor well then you know the answer you got to focus on training your biceps a little bit more specifically, more particularly. Maybe that means harder and more. Maybe that means less because you're overdoing it. And then your biceps get bigger, and then all of a sudden, bam, you fix that. There's other plateaus that are technical plateaus. So your technique could be off, and someone's like, watch as you do a front lever, and they're like, I can tell you why you stopped progressing, you idiot. You're you're raising your legs wrong. You're like, oh, oh, I am? Like, yeah, watch this. They show you, and you're like, oh, shit. You try it. You're like... Oh, like you just hit a local maximum of how strong you were in that movement because your technique was preventing you from getting better. So it's about trying your best to think of what can be uh, resulting in a plateau and then fixing that specific issue. It could be more than one issue at a time. Usually it's just the one. And if you fix it, you start to make some gains
0: again. Perfect. Perfect. What recommendations do you have, Mike, for bringing up lagging body parts? We'll use the arms as an example.
1: Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is to cool it a little bit on your other training so that you're nice and recovered so that your arms can really be the focus. Another one is like kind of training arms earlier in your program or training them first. This especially applies to calisthenics athletes because a lot of times they'll do their core work first. They'll train their back, their legs or whatever. And then, you know, like, oh yeah, arms. Oh yeah, yeah. three sets of 10 of curls. Then I got to go like, you know, because like the guys aren't there to just get big arms. It's kind of an afterthought stop making it an afterthought. Once you hit your core work, go and do your arms right after. Focus on them. Really good technique, close to failure. Make sure that when your arms are recovered to be trained again, you train them again. Make sure that you are putting more weight on the bar by a little bit each time or adding a repetition here and there. For all athletes, calisthenics athletes included, there's a tendency to just like we call them in the States to mail in the assistance work where you're like, yeah, like, uh, like, i did stuff after i was like, i trained arms like what did you do i've even seen guys as worksheets or like you know their programs where they're like a front lever x by x like xyz move x by x like that i did my pull-ups x by x and and they don't even call it like bicep curls like arms three by 10 like what do you mean arms arms is a muscle group it's, a, it's not a muscle group. it's a body part it could be forearms tricep by it could be shoulders who I knows like
0: h- hinges bro
1: <laughs> Right? Exactly. It's like, who what does that even mean? And so you gotta just get real specific, real particular, and for four to eight weeks at a time, really hammer the living crap out of them. See the little gains, little gains, little gains. Go for gains in strength for reps or for gains in repetitions, which really is the same thing with a certain given load, then your arms almost by definition have to get bigger, they'll get stronger, you'll get more capable. And here's another thing: while you're training your arms, you will have to put some other stuff on the back burner. That means your core skills moves might not improve during
0: that time, or improve as fast, or even regress a little bit if you're advanced. That's okay. Now with social media these days, a blessing and a curse, we're exposed to so much good information, but particularly with bodybuilding, there's a lot of people that get swept into body dysmorphia through comparison to others, comparison to themselves. It can get pretty toxic, So what recommendations do you have for bodybuilding with a healthy mindset? Oh, that's a really good question. So a couple of things. One is that
1: no matter how hard you squint at the Instagram picture, you're not going to get some other person's genetics. And genetics is the number one reason why people look like they do. Another reason is you have no idea who's taking a moderate amount of anabolic steroids in a safe manner or they're coordinated with a physician or who's taking insane amounts so will be dead in three weeks you have no idea you're like oh that guy looks cool why don't i look like that guy three weeks later he's dead from too much drug use and you're like oh oh thank god i didn't look up to that guy too much you know so everyone's on their different path they're training differently they have different genetics they're taking different drugs and at the end of the day you have no idea what combination of variables are going in there If you start comparing yourself to that person, what exactly is it that you're comparing yourself to? Like, of course you're gonna look differently. And then you say, okay, okay. I'm not comparing myself, I know people are different. So what does that mean I have to do as far as how do I relate to my own body? Well, for your own body, you just have to try to make it look as good as you can, which means that week to week, month to month, year to year progress is what you focus on for yourself. Like. I don't, so much, it used to bother me a ton. It doesn't bother me much anymore that other people have more impressive physiques than me. What I care about is how is my physique doing over the weeks and months and years? And if if my physique is improving, geez, but that's really all I can do. What else am I supposed to do, wish myself into somebody else's physique? And another, uh, a few of these things, another one is to walk the logical steps in what it is that you're, where your thinking process is likely to take you. For example, I look at calisthenics athlete on my, uh, uh, you know, Instagram, on my iPhone. And calisthenics athletes, a lot of times, they look like men's physique competitors. They're just like essentially what every guy wishes they looked like. You know, I look at these guys and I'm like, man, I, man, I, I feel bad about how I look. Okay, fine, fine. And then what? What? Where are you supposed to go next with that? I don't think anyone's really ever thought it through. Uh, Not anyone. A lot of people just haven't thought it through. They're like, oh, man, they see this person looks great. They look in the mirror. They don't look great. And they're like, that sucks. Okay, fine, fine. Think that thought. Now pause. Now what? What is the utility of that thought? I say, well, it motivates me to train. Bullshit. The fuck out of my face. Training motivation comes from seeing yourself improve little by little on your way towards a goal. A goal that's your goal for you, a better version of you. That's that real fire, that long-term shit that keeps you going. Hating yourself for as a form of motivation is the shortest fuse in the world. I've seen so many people do that and burn right the fuck out of the sport. I've been training with weights for 23 years or something like that. I still love the shit why because early on i was like i'm gonna do me i'm gonna get as good as i can get for me i don't give a fuck. like even when i have super low percent body fat just because of my body shape, i have a big gut i just have a poosh like there it is all right do i wish i didn't sure but like i'm not eight years old so i don't like wish for the tooth fairy to come and i don't wish for my gut to disappear it just is what it is and all i'm trying to do is make myself a better version of me and also i realize that if i have negative thoughts i'm gonna keep all these negative thoughts If they're useful, so if like someone tells me, look, if you have more negative thoughts, when the aliens come to attack the earth, you'll be able to take the negative thoughts and turn them into a gun and shoot them and save everyone. I'll be like, great, I'll take all the negative thoughts I can, but if someone's like, okay, just kidding, that's bullshit, never happens. What is the value of negative thinking? What is the value of you looking in the mirror and saying, I hate myself? None, you're just having a bad time. It's just giving you a bad time. Why would you do something that gives you a bad time imagine you're like with your with your friends in whatever kind of car you have and it's you and your young beautiful friends and you're on the way to a great concert and you're having fucking the time of your life and you look over and there's a guy in like a Maserati like passing you and he's got a great car you could be like wow. I wish I was that guy. Why? So you could be alone in a car and you're fucking, you know, your wife's cheating on you and you have run out of money and your companies are all bankrupt and all you fucking have is a stupid Maserati and your expensive suit and you just hope to God people don't know you're a fraud? You're like, wait, that's not how that guy feels. Maybe. But you don't know. So why would you look over at somebody else's shit and think about what they have? enjoy what you have and try to make what you have better negative thoughts of comparing yourself to other people you can have them it's okay to have them we all have them every now and again but you got to think one step ahead like where is this all taking me it's just going to take me to a place where i'm a person who has lots of negative thoughts Fuck that i'm going to work on my body i'm going to be really happy with my results There's a difference between happy and satisfied. Nobody says that like, oh, don't worry, you're beautiful the way you are. Fuck that. I don't think I'm beautiful. I think I look fine. I think fuck weird to some people. I look cool to some other people. But with me, I feel like I'm okay in my own body and I can always make it a little bit better. But I don't have to have hatred for that. Hatred just poisons everything. So if you're looking at your body, you got all this dysmorphia, you really hate how it looks, just give all that shit up and start with working on making yourself a little bit better. Be as happy as you can be and also work to make yourself a little bit better, that'll leave you in such a great place because you'll be happier all the time and it'll empower you over time to be happy
0: and ripped and jacked compared to where you used to be. And then at the end of the day, like what more can you ask for? It's that self-definition of success is so key. And I think what gets people all riled up and angry about this particular topic is it's often associated with self-love and just complete complacency and not trying. We're not saying that. It's, It's defining your success based on yourself and working really hard within the constraints that you've been given. So just a quick closing example of myself personally, I don't fit the attributes of a calisthenics person. I'm six foot tall, I weigh 86 kilos, so everything's gonna be harder for me. Doing handstand push-ups is harder, doing planches is harder. If I was to constantly compare what I can do compared to what the top can do, I'd be constantly depressed. But the thing is, I don't know their history. I don't know their genetics. I don't know what they're doing with their life. I know what I've got, what I've been given. So then pushing myself to achieve goals that I know I can achieve is the most gratifying thing. So setting myself a goal of doing a straddle planche and holding that was one of my major objectives. I got it. But then on the internet, people are like, Daniel, why haven't you done a full planche with your legs together? Well, it's because I set this arbitrary goal for myself it really challenged me. It pushed me for multiple years. I was satisfied to get it. I win because it's self-defined. So the takeaway for people listening is it needs to be relative to your body, and that'll keep you in a healthy mindset to keep doing this long term. I think that's key, what you said there, Mike. Dude,
1: that, you said it much better than I could have. That I really
0: feel that. Sweet, Mike, that was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Where can people find out more about your work?
1: So YouTube is a good place. And just type in my last name, Isretel, I S R E T L. on YouTube. You'll find tons of videos. Um, Renaissance Periodization is the channel. Uh, we've got quite a few subscribers now, so that's going really well. And it's just all the stuff about how to train, how to eat, uh, how to plan out your training and stuff like that. It's really just like a super content-based sort of results-focused channel.
0: Perfect. I'll provide those links in the show notes. Otherwise, Take care, Mike. Thanks everyone for listening. Visit fitnessfaqs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.